Welcome to another episode of The Artistic Director with Jacob Alexander Ferg. I'm sitting here with Randy Dixon. Randy, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, perfect. For the listener who doesn't know who you are, mm-hmm. uh, can you give a brief history of the uh, of the performance of Randy Dixon that led him to this <laughs> moment right now? Uh, that led me to this moment right now? Well, uh, I'm Artistic Director of Unexpected Productions, uh, which is an improv company, Seattle's longest-running improv company. We're in our 34th year of actively performing, and I've been artistic director since 1988, and like most things improvisational, uh, I didn't plan on becoming an artistic director. It just sort of happened because nobody really wanted to do it, I guess. I don't know. Uh, Not entirely true, but um, yeah, it was before we had a space and everything like that, so uh, you know, we had solid goals by getting a theater and doing that and of course when we got the theater then all of a sudden it began to snowball and work wise artistic director wise and uh yeah i've been doing it ever since but i had no formal training in arts administration uh it's basically a performer doing improv with the company and there were uh, i was always part of the organization of the company part of the management team sort of when we were back when we were like more much more democratic in our process yeah Um, So I've always been around the business side of it, but never had a real formal role until becoming artistic director. I'm curious, has it only been uh, unexpected productions for you in terms of improv or as a performer? Oh, as a performer, I've done lots of improv. Uh, I started when I was really young and... I was in the group, a group called None of the Above, which was sort of a, one of the foundation groups for what eventually became Unexpected Productions. Okay, cool. There were several groups in town, and it was uh, we did short form, but we also were the group in Seattle that did Heralds way yeah. back when. So I was in that group for a while, and I did other little groups that kind of started and folded. And you know, Unexpected Productions started as Seattle Theater Sports. We were the first theater sports group in the country. Uh, in oh, the I didn't US. know that. Yeah. So that was sort of the side project that all these other groups did. We would do our weekend shows. We had a lot of actors involved, so they were in plays. Improv, we did Monday nights because that was everybody's night off. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as the years went by and as a want to happen in improv or I guess theater in general, as various groups broke apart, uh, the remaining people kind of clung to um, being in theater sports. And so after... I don't know, two years, maybe three years, we had kind of basically formed an ensemble without really trying. And then we knew we wanted to do stuff other than short form and theater sports, so that's when Unexpected Productions became the the company name, so that would free us to do plays and long form and develop stuff and genre work and all the other stuff that we do now. Yeah, and then I'm just curious, how did you get this space also? Because this is an awesome space. Yeah. Well, I was familiar with this space when it was a movie theater, because mm-hmm. I used to hang out here, and I had a, a, a woman who I, Martha, who I went to high school with, who worked here when it was a movie theater, and she eventually became our, one of our first house managers when we took it over. Awesome. But So it was always this funky little space, and I kind of knew a little bit about it. Uh, we were looking for space. We almost signed uh, an agreement to take over the historic university theater where jet city is now oh yeah under a different owner and that uh to be nice about it it was complicated so <laughs> every time i went to sign it was there's some other complication happened so it get got put off this meanwhile had stopped being an independent theater movie theater and was and was run by a chain that 
opened a 10plex or 12plex across the street on 2nd and Pike. And so they didn't want the space anymore. So basically they walked away from it. The market at the time, kind of a perfect storm around that time. So this would have been 90 or so that we were talking. We moved in here in May of 91. So sometime around there, a year or so before that, the market had reclaimed itself from like drug dealers and they hired the security force, the market security. And they got some restaurants to come in, but they were looking for something that uh, was not a restaurant that could draw people at night. And at the time, we were over at Intamon Theater, which seats, I think it's at 425 people, and we were selling it out twice a week. So they went over there, saw us lining people at the Seattle Center, and they're like, hey, maybe these guys could bring, bring an audience. So then we started talking, and I had kind of a rough contact with them because of my history of just having hung around as the when it was a movie theater. And and they gave us, you know, some incentives to move in because it was obviously a great space and a great location, but that always means pretty expensive rents, but in order to help us get in, they gave us a hand and but we had to do everything, we had to take out the screens, we had to, you know, it was just a big giant chore (laughs) and then we started doing shows and fortunately we started lining people up around the corner and that's how they started they started the gum wall our audience started the gum wall oh wow yeah that's Um, amazing yeah we would line people up and somebody got the idea to put a penny on the wall so they pressed a penny with gum and then it became a thing to put pennies on the wall when there got to be enough pennies the homeless people would come and pry all the money off the wall and leave the gum right and uh, twice the market made us remove the gun because it was a nuisance, yeah. uh, which was pretty awful chore. And then after a while, it just got to be too big. And so the market gave up and said, I guess it's an attraction. That's how it started. That's fascinating. I never yeah. knew that. That's a fun little tidbit. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I like it because it's perfect in the improvisational world. I talk about this a lot where it's like it's, it's perfect. Gumwall is a great piece of art for an to have on the front of your improv theater because one it's ever-changing it's a different piece of art you know every moment anytime somebody adds a piece of gum or a piece of gum falls off but it's also anonymous there's no one person that can say that's my i started that yeah right and so i love that it's a collaborative art project it's the in almost its purest form yeah exactly and so (laughs) i often like to tell people that you know what you're seeing people doing out here we're doing inside except for it doesn't smell like (laughs) gum uh most of the time Uh, yeah um awesome so i like to start uh start my podcast asking everyone this big ambiguous question Uh please answer it however you feel is the right way Uh to answer it for you but um the question is simply what is your artistic direction (laughs) what is my artistic direction well uh off the top of my head, I think that there, there's several angles I would answer that question from. One, internally, I am very much a story-driven artist, uh, and I think that reflects in my artistic direction, that every time I'm looking at the big picture stuff, I'm looking at what kind of stories are we telling. And then that leads to the second layer, which is who, who are we doing it for? And I think my artistic direction definitely tries to advocate for the audience. Mm-hmm. So I always tell students and actors and stuff, I say the audience comes to tell a story, not to watch a story. So uh, our job is to translate what they want into theater. 
and so a lot of my artistic direction I think comes from that what is the audience going to experience what do I want them to experience yeah. and then that leads to the people who are doing it so finding people who are passionate about it hopefully inspiring them to be passionate about it and because of our school and our training we have people who have been here for years you sort of train people to that becomes their natural way of playing yeah and that helps a lot too because then they feel funny when they're not doing it <laughs> uh, and and then you know the projects they they propose and things like that oftentimes have have that kind of philosophical uh, you know they jive philosophically with where I'm coming from as artistic yeah. director in fact probably too much so there's so many shows I'd love to do that there's you know there's only so much we can do and we're already doing a lot yeah so how do you uh, one of the most difficult things I think is being the force that provides that inspiration mm-hmm. for a cast right uh, how, in what ways can you sort of I, I I've been using this word over and over again, but I like it, like invoke that right. sort of the potential within a cast by inspiring them. Or right. Well, I think you do it by, I think you do two things to them. One is uh, you try to get them to understand the why. So like that there's a reasoning, you know, reason behind what you're doing. Not, it's not just random or personal taste. There's a lot of things that if it was just up to me, you know, yeah. <laughs> different things would be happening. <laughs> but part of it's like, okay, you know, here's the why, here's the why we're doing it, um, and why we should do it. And then the second thing is giving them a firsthand experience of its success. So getting them to feel like, wow, that felt really great. That, that really works. And then to kind of go, okay, let's take that and give it to the audience or get the audience to feel that way I see. so that they have some ownership over it. Uh, I like to think that most of the performers in the show's aren't doing the show kind of going, I don't know why we're doing this or, you know, I hate this, you know, yeah. maybe they are, but they're not telling me about it. Yeah. But, um, but I find it just by going, cause we're not that different than the audience. So if you can get the performers to become inspired, um, then they can then in turn inspire the audience. Okay. And I'm curious when you said, I, I'm, I'm, I want you to li- elaborate a little bit uh-huh. more on the audience has come to tell a story yeah. not to watch a story right what does that mean i think an audience comes to and all of this i get from my own experience as an audience member yeah and again I, you know something i frequently say is i've i've been performing a long time i've done a lot of shows but i've still spent more time as an audience member at things yeah. you know, whether it's concert whether it's show whether it's dance anything and so i've always not always but definitely in the last like 15 years or so, I kind of take my audience experience seriously. Okay. So when I'm sitting and watching stuff, I go, what do I want? And when I say the audience comes to tell a story is I want to see things that are important to me and in my life represented on stage. I see. Right? Yeah. So, and in improvisation, it's so easy to do because it's improv at its heart is a snapshot of today. Mm-hmm. Right, so if the performers are on stage showing me this is what life is like today, I can go, yeah, that's what my life's like too, right? That doesn't mean everything has to be real or yeah. based, you know, that kind of stuff. You can do fantasy, you can do styles, you can do all kinds of stuff. You can dance, you can sing, um, but I just think there has to be something that the audience is going to relate to. And in addition to that, if you're just doing jokes, then at the end of the show, the audience just stands up and says, you know, where did we park the car? And yeah. that was funny. Uh, or they might remember a particular performer, but they're not going to remember anything about the show itself. Whereas if you give them something of themselves, 
then your show continues, right? And uh, and I can get more into that later because it's about where does the show start, where does the show end. Yeah. But you know, so example I frequently use is if you do a scene where you're playing, you know, the boss. I might be sitting in the audience going, yeah, that's exactly like my boss, right? Mm. Or I might be going, wow, thank God I don't work for that guy, yeah, right? But let's say you remind somebody of their boss just in habit, you know, or, or somebody else, but you're playing the boss. The next time they see that person, your show continues because they're going to go, oh, yeah, oh, it's like boss. the guy in the yeah. show, <laughs> right? And then yeah. they're going to kind of think back to your show and probably smile. Because that's the sort of laugh of recognition. We're not laughing because it's funny. Yeah. We're laughing because we recognize it. It's the um, I, I like to call this the you had to be there moment, right. where you you've effectively simulated something on stage so well that when the audience member tries to tell their friend about <laughs> right. it afterwards, they can't. Oh, that's great. They can't effectively convey it yeah. because you had to be there. Which yeah, is really... exactly. And so I think that's one of the things you're trying to again. Going back to the earlier question, that's one of the things that you want to get your performers inspired, but also hungry for. That that becomes like the the satisfaction of like, yeah. oh, we did that, right? And that's all through the again the the explaining, the directing, the the doing, uh, getting them kind of a, a little addicted to it. Yeah. <laughs> so I kind of have a perspective, and I wonder if you agree with me on it. Where I think I'm of the uh, the improv mindset that. Uh, it's okay to leave things ambiguous, and oh, yeah. it's okay to uh, slowly go into it. Uh, sort of on the same vein of when the audience, the audience will start making up whatever they see, and they'll create so much of the scene for you. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with that? A? Uh, and B, like, how do you cultivate uh, I, the culture of a specific theater? That's yeah. sort of two separate ideas. I'm collapsing into one. Right. Does that make sense? Sort of, I think so. I'll yeah. try. Uh, well, I think, I mean, everyone's a natural storyteller, right? Yeah. So even your audience has been told thousands, if not millions, of stories, and and they tell stories all the time. You know, if you, if I come in and I say, "How was your day?" You're going to tell me a story, right? So they're already storytelling experts, right? And oftentimes with classes, I tell the students, I say, you know, I'm not teaching you anything about story. What I'm teaching you are terms by which we can talk about story, right? Yeah. So you can get a better understanding of what's working, what's not working. Or we can watch a scene and we can take it apart and talk about the parts of pieces of it. Audience member without that without that training just looks at it and says, I'm bored. Yeah. Right. And they know they're bored. So what you're really trying to do is to get your performer self on stage. So, you know, uh, Keith Johnstone talks about um, the idea of thinking like the audience. And every single improv teacher I've ever encountered, including myself, teaches some level of that, Mm -hmm. right? Of thinking like your audience. But I like Keith's image of, like, if we we could sneak you on stage without you knowing that you're performing, you'd be this perfect little storyteller. Yeah, interesting. Right? But... Because there's lights, because there's collaboration, because of, you know we were nervous, et cetera, et cetera. It, it's like our best impulses uh, are to do the opposite. Yeah. We become the blocks come. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah. we just become less efficient storytellers. Um, and uh, you know, so the other thing is that time is moving slower in the audience because there's no pressure on the audience member. They're just sitting in the dark doing the story in their head. That's fascinating. Right? And so as far as agreeing with it, yeah, wholeheartedly. I think the image I use is a lot of shows you go to, and uh, and the image I have, which is not entirely, because you wouldn't do a performance this way, but I think you'll get what I mean, 
is you know the improviser's favorite shape is a circle, right? So it's like okay. it's the, so the equivalent of the show is the audience comes in and sits down. Improvisers come out, do the equivalent of forming a circle on stage, and the audience is supposed to watch this. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. But what I do is I say that's fine to form the circle, but spread the circle out and leave open spaces so that you're turning to your audience saying, "No, come join the circle." I see. Right. You are a collaborator, and that's what I talk about all, all the time. The audience is a collaborator. They're performing in the show. They're not watching the show. Del Close used to say, and I think about this before every time I perform, and I say this all the time to remind myself, but it's a great, great thing to keep in mind. He used to say, um, you know, you should be so in touch with your audience that if one person left or one person came in after your show started, the entire show should change. Wow. Right? Now, I've never once experienced that personally, <laughs> but I think about it before I perform every single time because it, it it reminds me to be aware of the audience. Yeah. You know, like be, you know, I'm going to try to be hyper aware of the audience and try to be so in touch with them, you know, and, and it just gives me an awareness that they're there versus forgetting that they're there altogether, which I've also talked to improvisers that do that. Yeah. Like they don't, don't think about the audience at all. Well, that's, that's a difficult level of engagement because you have to be engaged with your scene partner on stage, but also with the audience at the same time. Right. Right. Well, what you're doing is, is you and I are on stage doing a scene. I make an offer to you. Okay. The audience watches me make the offer. Right. Mm -hmm. And they turn it into story and they make that story offer to us. So it's as if we're throwing offers out to the audience. Audience is throwing us back story. I see. And then responding to the story, we make another offer and they make more story. We make another offer. So we're almost like bouncing every offer off the audience. Right. Right. And then that's when we're getting that thing uh, of telling the audience's story versus me forcing the audience to listen to my story. Yeah. Right. Which may or may not engage them. Yeah. That's interesting. And I think so. I want to come back to this idea of sometimes you're out of touch with the audience, and I think that's when you are putting up those blocks, um, and you're not you're, you're trying to present a variant of yourself that isn't just you on stage, right. which is right. devastating. I mean, one of the best pieces of advice I've ever received is just the simple statement, "You are enough." Like, oh, yeah. That's all you need to be, and that's like yeah, this beautiful. <laughs> like yeah, 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 yeah. So I guess um, <clears throat> the question I'm going to derive out of this is. If if you are leading a group of people and you are see you are seeing cast members who are sort of trying to present that variant of themselves uh-huh. that isn't them, uh, in, in what ways can you help them spin that into just being present? Well, the, the I mean, there's a lot of techniques, and some of them are easy, some of them are really hard. Um, you know, but it's a combination of you know training, notes, um, and all of that. But the easiest way to put it is the only thing that really makes people want to change a habit or to retrain or to find something is to give them a good experience around it. Mm-hmm. So it's that idea of, uh, you know, uh, when you take a kid, you know, baby and throw it in the air and then it's like, you know, throw me again. Right. You know, it's, it's that kind of, that, that was a blast. Yeah. Right. So what you, I try to do is again, give the performer that experience because okay. I go, if they're having a good experience, then they're going to want to do it again. The hard part, is is in that transitional moment because when they're first doing it it's sort of like riding a bike again you know you're going to fall over ouch it hurts you know you're going to try this move you know try this different way of improvising and it doesn't work the tendency is to go see it doesn't work right or it's not for me yeah that kind of thing what you want to do is is, the hardest thing is to get them to no try it again and try it again there it is right Mm -hmm. and then people build up that good experience of uh, and then they want to then that again becomes part of what they want to do 
because it feels good. Yeah, that's. Uh, I want to sort of transition into the uh-huh. so going from cast to just students. The unexpected production has a pretty large right. uh, educational system. I'm curious about taking students and including them in the improv sort of family that you right. uh, and that I, I'm guessing a lot of people who are in classes sort of start kind of eking their way over oh, yeah, to yeah, being yeah. on stage. How do you find those people who are that little bit of extra passionate about it within a class and, and what can they do to sort of move themselves up? I think it's pretty easy because those people tend to be self-motivated yeah. so they're around. Yeah. So as you know, we do duos, uh, and that's a big crossover period. We also have performance level class. We have other performing opportunities. We hopefully are going to have more for students. Yeah. Because one of the things about improv training is, even though there are you know a ton of books now about improv, at its heart, it's still an oral tradition. You know, and back when I was learning improv, there were three books. Right. There's yeah. Johnson's Impro had just come out. Viola Spolin's book, and then Jeffrey Sweet's Something Wonderful Right Away, which oh. is interviews. And so, and that was it. So you had to go talk to people. You had to watch. You had to get up and do. You had to, you know. And it was for nobody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I think now people go, well, there's nobody here. I'm like, wow. You, you know, there, our shows were so unattended at one point that we introduced the players because there were fewer. There were fewer audience. You know, to save time. Yeah. Right? And, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I introduced the audience members because oh. there were fewer of them. Like, well, introduce five of you while the seven of us are up here performing. But so getting those, getting your reps in is super important. But someone who is is that little extra, as, as you put it, I think is pretty self-motivated. So like Duos is a great example. We tell everybody at every level of our classes, hey, we got a show Monday night or Wednesday nights. All you have to do is show up and sign up. Well, what percentage of people show up? And then show up every week or show up you know, yeah. twice a month or whatever. A lot of students don't. And they're not there yet. Right, but, but we try to keep the doors as open as possible so that people c- can get in. As far as moving uh, moving through the system for them, I take a note from Paul Sills, who used to say, you know, ha- uh, you know, just announce your show, and you know, cast who shows up. Right, it's the idea of just showing up. Yeah. So we have people who are around who are learning and watching, and then stuff will happen you know like in theater sports over sure to judge hey there's a student here let's pull them in that kind of that happens more and more we do have auditions and i will say probably 80 to 90 percent of the people that we cast are people who've come up through our system and two things have happened one is they've learned sort of the the philosophy so they're more of a natural fit than someone who hasn't Mm -hmm. learned our system and two they've been around so oftentimes people come in, it's like everybody knows who the person auditioning is. Yeah. And I think that that helps us, helps me certainly in judging talent, but it also, I think, helps the person auditioning because they're working with people they may have done a show with. Or, yeah. You know, that and, that, and that just peels a layer back of yeah. being nervous where it's like, yeah. oh, I'm familiar with all these yeah. people. Yeah, it is hard because there is a pecking order in most improv groups, and we really try with... Some success. I won't say it's entirely successful. To kind of break that down. Yeah. You know, where like the the experienced, older, mature improvisers, you know, don't want to work with the new people, or yeah. that kind of new people are intimidated by by the people. And so, I'm trying to break down those walls as much as possible. Like I said, sometimes it works, sometimes yeah. it doesn't. And that's that's crucial off stage because I think it's vital on stage. Right. Uh, like if there's 
seven seven people on stage, they should all be equal components in their own right. interesting ways. Right. Uh, you said that they learned the philosophy of unexpected production. Right. I'm just curious, what <laughs> would you say in words is the philosophy of unexpected production? Well, I think we it's storytelling based. It's um, trying to have some weight to our work. Stuff can be big and dumb and frivolous, but if it's all that, I think uh, it, it doesn't work. And the flip side's true. If, it, if it's way too heavy and serious and dramatic, you know, so I think variety is one of our philosophies and our flavors. I often call it, uh, like when people come in and they say, oh, I studied here and I, you know, I want to come over there. I say, well, you know, let's take a few classes and stuff because you haven't learned our dialect yet. Yeah. Uh, we all speak improv. Yep. But there are different dialects, and some accents are thicker than others. Uh, (laughs) I love that. uh, I love that. You know, but storytelling is at its heart, and that's always the bottom line, even more so than technical proficiency is, is, you know, we'll do a scene, and the game wasn't played great, but the first thing we're going to talk about is what was was the story, or we didn't have a story, right? Or we tabled the story, or whatever it was. Now let's talk about how we played the game, or played the format, right? Um, And we're inclusive. So to me, it's about, I'm not a big structure guy, so I don't like thing where things are laid out. The scene will be two people and they're going to do that, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Very loose because I like to invite mistakes to happen because hopefully if we have skilled performers on stage, which I think we do, their reaction to the mistake is going to be worth, yeah. worth it versus knowing that they can just do it, right? So I like to invite the mistake. So I guess spontaneity, uh, collaboration through leaning on each other. So it's not about showboating. It's not about, you know, uh, one person, you know, these three people are extra special, you know. So, you know, and that's why I, actually a lot of our cast, get, getting back to like the, the hierarchy and pecking order, like I think when I cast, like if I have a seven-person cast, I'm going to cast four or five relatively experienced people in the company and then two or three people who have not done a lot of shows because then I feel like that gives them that experience yeah. and you treat them all equally yes right yeah. and we do that with everybody including uh, like tech which I find is often ignored in improvisation we yeah. encourage our tech to, to train to take classes but we also ask, ask them all the time like well what did you guys think you know and with experienced tech like when we're doing a herald I always give the same direction which um, people laugh at and I'm not, but I'm not joking. If it's an experienced tech who I know can do it, I just say, bring the lights down when you've seen enough, right? Because yeah. I trust them to do it. It's not up to me to like wave it all down and direct and do all the stuff and try to control the show. So inclusive in that way of like, it's everybody, including the audience, but also in the formats without structures being able to say, you know, people will say yeah, all the time something like oh, oh can we sing in this and I'm like I don't know can you, you know, try it <laughs> yeah. why not right yeah. but you know there are very few times where I'm like nah you really can't or it doesn't work for this particular format because most of the time I'm like uh, you know if you can make it work do it why not you know um, so again about bringing in uh, the inclusive stuff so inclusion storytelling collaboration and I think there's a certain amount of uh, respecting attitudes because one of the things that uh, I noticed in improv that we've tried to, I've tried to counter as artistic director is oftentimes somebody will get inspired to start an improv group, uh, maybe a young youngish person, and they'll form a group and they'll cast like five or six other people who are ex- kind of exactly like them, I, right? 
<laughs> know exactly what you're talking about. And for me, it's it's like one, I don't want to cast a bunch of people like me because then I don't get to shine. Yeah. <laughs> but also, uh, I don't want I want lots of diverse attitudes on stage. Yeah. So you know, our youngest uh, cast member or company member is in his early twenties. Uh, our oldest cast members in his early 60s or their early 60s so we've got this range all in between and there's still even more I think we could be doing in yeah. terms of audience representation on stage or life representation on stage but with that comes like oh you and I don't see eye to eye but we can respect each other for that Yeah. so there's not a lot of you need to think like me or that kind of stuff yeah because um, that's sort of toxic that's, yeah, yeah, that yeah. is just toxic right that's, I feel like if you get two people with radically different life experiences on stage doing a scene together, you're more likely to see a scene that has never even been touched. In your yeah, before, exactly. Uh, which yeah. is the fun of, of the whole entire thing. Yeah, and that's one of the ways that, like, a judge improvisation, like, I tell students and cast members all the time, say, you know, how do you know when you're improvising well? Well, when everyone on stage is telling a story they never would have told on their own, mm-hmm. right? Because then yeah. that's when you get the collaboration. It's, it's product of everybody, including the audience, of this moment, and that's what improv should be about. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Yeah. Is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't talked about in terms of just, I don't know, the whole world of improv or artistic direction specifically? Well, I think artistic direction is... It's... You know, arts admin in general is very underappreciated. You know, I think people take for granted that there are people who have to balance the budgets and sign checks and, you know... Uh, Stuff like that. And everybody's involved in that. So even as an artistic director, people oh, that must be so great. You just get to create art. I'm like, eh, no, I barely get to do that. Because uh, <laughs> you're mixed in with all this other stuff. And, you know, you're trying to take care of the, of the, of the whole ship. And it, if you find the balance, and I think I found a balance because I've been doing it long enough. If you're a cast member or an improviser, you get an idea for a show. Hey, I can get these guys together. We can go do a show somewhere else. You can pitch to Randy. Randy picks it. Great. I'm doing my show. Right? Well, I'm doing that with my own work as an artist. But then I'm also in charge of your show because I've got to make sure your show works. Right? So it's that idea of trying to be available to come in and give feedback or if, if wanted, you know, or as much or as little as somebody wants me to do. And you've got all these other things going. And that's the thing I think people don't appreciate so much and you've got the one project you know we're doing 11 shows a week here and each one of them has its own different set of set of demands and so you end up uh i was talking to a a improviser in europe (laughs) and we were talking about it and i said said what are you doing i said well i'm in the group blah 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 and i'm the artistic director and the person's response was oh so you're the one that deals with everyone else's crazy (laughs) <laughs> and I thought, ding, that yeah. just rang a bell. Like, you're absolutely right. Everyone else is crazy, right? And that's what you're doing. You, you know, even, even, even in the best projects, you're, you're always still sort of, you know, the most positive experiences, you're still dealing with, with other people yeah. um, and what's going on there. And that can be both positive, you can have great experience, but I'm still having to deal with you as a director who's working under the auspices of unexpected productions or maybe it's a great show but you're nervous you know and so you have to make all these adjustments around that all of those things also are like when we pick projects you're also trying to find variety for people challenges for people there are a couple shows uh where i try like our thursday show improv anonymous is sort of a subset of our company so it's the same people 
every week. So for that show, what I try to do when I'm planning as artistic director, I guess director as well, um, is sometimes I'll do, we got to do this show in March because it's going to help us practice skills that we're going to need in September when we do that show. So you sort of think of like the big picture, like skill development over the course of the year, but with hopefully interesting enough projects that the cast gets excited about it. And that's, a, I think, a really hard, hard thing to, to do. Yeah, one of my questions is where's that balance? How do you, or especially something I'm interested in, in terms of artistic direction, and I mentioned this to you before right. we started recording, was the idea that you have your own artistic intent and everyone else has their own artistic right. intent, which I kind of see as dealing with that's our crazy. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and so how do, you, how do you cultivate a single direction for the theater while still honoring everyone else's intent and not sort of stifling, stifling their creative abilities? Right. Well, I think it has to do with talking to people about their projects and, uh, you know, and it, it, it spans time. One thing that... Uh, well, maybe, uh, probably not true everywhere, but it's definitely true here in this theater. I mean, things take time. So, in fact, when you got here, we were talking about a project that, you know, it's down the road. Yeah. And I don't know when. <laughs> and I've been sitting on projects myself, things I've been interested in doing for like 10 years sometimes. And then finally, the time will go, this is it. Time to do it. So, I spent a lot of time talking to people about projects. You know, I mean, our process, you know, because I want people who are, who are passionate about it. But I also need to know that they're going to come through. Yeah. So, so part of it is getting to understand where, you know, if, if you're in this company, part of it's me trying to understand where you're coming from. Like, what do you like? What do you not like? Right. Um, and then, you know, how does that fit in with the project that you're pitching me? And then it comes to like, okay, what's my experience with you? Or the type of person that I don't, I don't have to watch you the entire time? Yeah. Or can I send you on your way? And, you know, and I don't mind working with people on new projects who've never directed before. But there's a lot of hand-holding that goes, goes in with that. And so, so you're constantly doing that. And then how do you spread that over the year so that I'm not spending all of my time working with new directors over the course of one year? You know, so can I have an experienced person here and an inexperienced person, you know, plan my, my engagement as artistic director, you know, over, over the course of the year? And it's funny because I tell people if, uh, this, <laughs> one of the, my genius moves as an artistic director was people would pitch projects all the time. And, and, and people come, and they still do, they come to me, uh, and I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but people will pitch something, and they'll go, you, you know what you should do? Is oh. you should do this show, right? And yeah. I'm like, I'm not passionate. I don't want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll help you do it if you want to do it, that kind of thing. Yeah. Or once in a while, I'll go, oh, yeah, that'd be great. you know. Or, I've, yeah, I've, I've been thinking about something like that. I've been on both sides of the <laughs> interaction. <Yeah. laughs> you know, someone should do. Yeah. You know? And so I think one of my genius moves as artistic director was literally just having people fill out a form. So people come to me and they go, I want to do a show. I go, great, fill out this form, send it to me, and we'll meet and talk. Because I'm amazed at how many people can't fill out the form. Like, I never don't hear about it. Or I'll, they'll talk about it tomorrow and go, send in the form, you know. And, uh, and I tell them directly. I say, because if you can't fill out a piece of paper, I can't trust you to put up a show. Yeah. Right? That makes sense. And, uh, and so a lot of stuff just goes away. Whereas before, I was talking about projects all the time. But then I realized, oh, this is not the person to do this project. They're not going to yeah. have the follow through. There's a power in making them write it down too. <laughs> yeah. where it's like, this is permanently yeah. on paper, your idea, and I can read it and I know this is your idea rather than just this ambiguous thing in the air. Yeah. But then there are, uh, and then the second part of it uh, that I try to, 
let everybody know is just that time element. Because people come in and go, I want to do the show. And they're thinking, I'm going to do it in July, right? You know, and it's like, no, you can't do it in July. It's going to be next year or sometime because we've got a bunch of stuff coming up. You know, that being said, there are times when things fall through or things just don't work or we realize, oh, that project can't happen. Where I do kind of go, who can I grab who can put to put up something really fast? You know, oh, that project you have, let's throw that in here yeah. because it's going to be really fast and easy. Yeah, easy to do. and bare bones, yeah. Yeah, or you know, bring back something that uh, the cast has talked about wanting to do again. Yeah, you know, we just opened a show last night, Black Eyed Blonde, which is the show we've been doing since the early '90s, um, and just we did it as part of our improvathon. A lot of people hadn't done it, and it was kind of a loose form because obviously people hadn't done. <laughs> done the format before but people were so excited about it in the improvathon that it's like well i took what i was planning on doing in that slot and just moved that somewhere in you know, a kind of holding pattern and said well people are excited about doing the show let's do that show then because i'd rather have you excited about the show yeah than trying to convince you to be excited about whatever show i wanted to do yeah that's kind of listening to the cast that's like yeah. that 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 back and forth Okay, well, I would love to keep talking with you, but we're, we're right about out of time. Randy, okay. this has been amazing. You've had great oh, things to say. Yeah, thank you. You made uh, it easy. Yeah, <laughs> good, good. I'm glad. That's, I've, I've been working on it. Um, if there's anyone who is trying to find Unexpected Productions or you online, are there any plugs that you have? Basically, unexpectedproductions.org is our website, and you can, if you go to the cast list or something, there, you can click up my picture and it'll get me an email. And then this will be released around late July. So, do you have any plugs for shows that would be coming up? Uh, yeah, we we're doing a show opens late July. It's called uh, Shramplin Falls, which okay. is a really big name. <laughs> uh, but it was pitched by one of our, our ensemble members. And what it is is it's about small town crime. Okay. So there'll be a cast of characters. It's not like a. Um, it's not like a murder mystery thing or anything like that, but it's sort of like you know how in uh, local newspapers there's like the police blotter, you know, so and so's riding lawnmower disappeared or somebody found a stray dog. It's kind of taking those stories, but hopefully getting people to care about them because the characters are well developed, and uh, and I mean we haven't even started rehearsing it, so yeah. By the time this comes out, it might be an entirely different show, yeah, but but it's called yeah. Shramplin Falls and it opens. Uh, I think the 21st of July and runs through August. Okay, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I like to end my podcast with this. Uh, can you give one recommendation of anything at all? A book, a movie, a way of life, uh, a quote that you like, a poem, I don't know, just any <laughs> any sort of thing, one single recommendation. A recommendation. Uh, well, I tell people to... Uh, a book that a lot of people aren't familiar with and, and I should be getting royalties on from him no he's a great guy is Steve Nakmanovich's Free Play Free Play uh, Free okay. Play and uh, I tell people they should read that they should read John Stone's Impro yeah um, or, or like my go to like start there anything else is gravy but I like Free Play because it's it's you can read it in I don't know an hour and a half maybe it's a thin volume okay it's not really about theater it's about music Steve Nakmanovich is a musician and so I love it because the way he puts it it's it's not necessarily my world, but I get it. I see. Right, and so I think it's a good book for improvisers to read. That's yeah, and the, so. taking that other art form and sort of plugging it in because I think all other art can positively influence the art that you're doing. Yeah. Um, awesome, Randy. Again, thank you so much. Sure. Uh, you can find this podcast at jacobalexanderford.com. It's on Facebook, it's on SoundCloud, and it's on iTunes. And thank you so much for listening, and have a wonderful day, listener. <laughs>